0: CHAPTER Twenty Three: THE REVELATION OF THE SCARLET LETTER The eloquent voice on which the souls of the listening audience had been borne aloft as on the swelling waves of the sea, at length, came to a pause. There is a momentary silence, profound as what should follow the utterance of oracles. Then ensued a murmur and half-hushed tumult, as if the auditor's released from the high spell that had transported them into the region of another's mind, were returning into themselves, with all their awe and wonder still heavy on them. In a moment more, the crowd began to gush forth from the doors of the church. Now that there was an end, they needed other breath, more fit to support the gross and earthly life into which they had relapsed than that atmosphere which the preacher had converted into words of flame, and had burdened with the rich fragrance of his thought. In the open air their rapture broke into speech. The street and the marketplace absolutely babbled from side to side with applauses of the minister. His hearers could not rest until they had told one another of what they each knew better than he could tell or hear. According to their united testimony, never had a man spoken in so wise, so high, and so holy a spirit as he that spake this day nor had inspiration ever breathed through his mortal lips more evidently than it did through his. Its influence could be seen, as it were, descending upon him and possessing him and continually lifting him out of the written discourse that lay before him and filling him with ideas that must have been as marvelous to himself as to his audience. His subject, it appeared, had been the relation between the deity and the communities of mankind, with a special reference to the New England, which they were here planting in the wilderness. And, as he drew towards the close, a spirit as of prophecy had come upon him, constraining him to its purpose as mightily as the old prophets of Israel were constrained. Only with this difference, that whereas the Jewish seers had denounced judgments and ruin on their country, it was his mission to foretell a high and glorious destiny For the newly-gathered people of the Lord. But throughout it all, and through the whole discourse, there had been a certain deep, sad undertone of pathos which could not be interpreted otherwise than as the natural regret of one soon to pass away. Yes, their minister, whom they so loved, and who so loved them all, that he could not depart heavenward without a sigh, had the foreboding of untimely death upon him, and would soon leave them in their tears. This idea of his transitory stay on earth gave the last emphasis to the effect which the preacher had produced. It was as if an angel, in his passage to the skies, had shaken his bright wings over the people for an instant, at once a shadow and a splendor, and had shed down a shower of golden truths upon them. Thus there had come to the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, as to most men, in their various spheres, though seldom recognized until they see it far behind them, an epoch of life more brilliant and full of triumph than any previous one, or than any which could hereafter be. He stood at this moment on the very proudest eminence of superiority, to which the gifts of intellect, rich lore, prevailing eloquence, and a reputation of whitest sanctity could exalt a clergyman in New England's earliest days when the professional character was of itself a lofty pedestal. Such was the position which the minister occupied as he bowed his head forward on the cushions of the pulpit at the close of his election sermon. Meanwhile, Hester Prynne was standing beside the scaffold of the pillory, with the scarlet letter still burning on her breast. Now was heard again the clangor of the music and the measured tramp of the military escort issuing from the church door. The procession was to be marshaled thence to the town hall, where a solemn banquet would complete the ceremonies of the day. Once more, therefore, the train of venerable and majestic fathers was seen moving through a broad pathway of the people, who drew back, reverentially, on either side, as the governor and magistrates, the old and wise men, the holy ministers, and all that were eminent and renowned, advanced into the midst of them. When they were fairly in the marketplace, their presence was greeted by a shout. This, though doubtless it might acquire additional force and volume from the childlike loyalty which the aid awarded to its rulers, was felt to be an irrepressible outburst of enthusiasm kindled in the auditors by that high strain of eloquence which was yet reverberating in their ears. Each felt the impulse in himself, and in the same breath caught it from his neighbor. Within the church it had hardly been kept down. Beneath the sky it pealed upward to the zenith. There were human beings enough, and enough of highly wrought and symphonious feeling, to produce that more impressive sound than the organ tones of the blast, or the thunder, or the roar of the sea. Even that mighty swell of many voices blended into one great voice by the universal impulse, which makes likewise one vast heart out of the many. Never from the soil of New England had gone up such a shout. Never on New England soil had stood the man so honored by his mortal brethren as the preacher. How fared it with him, then? Were there not the brilliant particles of a halo in the air about his head? So etherealized by spirit as he was, and so hypothesized by worshipping admirers, did his footsteps in the procession really tread upon the dust of earth? As the ranks of military men and civil fathers moved onward, all eyes were turned towards the point where the minister was seen to approach among them. The shout died into a murmur as one portion of the crowd after another obtained a glimpse of him. How feeble and pale he looked amid all his triumph! The energy, or, say, rather the inspiration, which had held him up, until he should have delivered the sacred message that brought its own strength along with it from heaven, was withdrawn, now that it had so faithfully performed its office. The glow, which they had just before beheld burning on his cheek, was extinguished, like a flame, that sinks down hopelessly among the late decaying embers. It seemed hardly the face of a man alive, with such a death-like hue. It was hardly a man with life in him, that tottered on his path so nervelessly, yet tottered and did not fall. One of his clerical brethren, it was the venerable John Wilson, observing the state in which Mr. Dimsdale was left by the retiring wave of intellect and sensibility, stepped forward hastily to offer his support. The minister tremulously, but decidedly, repelled the old man's arm. He still walked onward, if that movement could be so described, which rather resembled the wavering effort of an infant, with its mother's arms in view, outstretched to tempt him forward. And now, almost imperceptible, as were the latter steps of his progress, he'd come opposite the well-remembered and weather-darkened scaffold where, long since, with all that dreary lapse of time between, Hester Prynne had encountered the world's ignominious stare. There stood Hester, holding Little Pearl by the hand, and there was the scarlet letter on her breast. The minister here made a pause, although the music still played the stately and rejoicing march to which the procession moved. It summoned him onward, onward to the festival, but here he made a pause. "'Bellingham, for the last few moments, had kept an anxious eye upon him. "'He now left his own place in the procession and advanced to give assistance. "'Judging, from Mr. Dimsdale's aspect, that he must otherwise inevitably fall. "'But there was something in the latter's expression that warned back the magistrate, "'although a man not readily obeying the vague intimations that pass from one spirit to another. "'The crowd, meanwhile, looked on with awe and wonder.' This earthly faintness was, in their view, only another phase of the minister's celestial strength. Nor would it have seemed a miracle too high to be wrought for one so holy had he ascended before their eyes, waxing dimmer and brighter, and fading at last into the light of heaven. He turned towards the scaffold and stretched forth his arms. Hester, said he, come hither. Come, my little pearl. It was a ghastly look with which he regarded them, but there was something at once tender and strangely triumphant in it. The child, with the bird-like motion which was one of her characteristics, flew to him and clasped her arms about his knees. Hester Prynne, slowly, as if impelled by inevitable fate, and against her strongest will, likewise drew near, but paused before she reached him, At this instant old Roger Chillingworth thrust himself through the crowd, or, perhaps so dark, disturbed and evil, was his look. He rose up out of some nether region, to snatch back his victim from what he sought to do. Be that as it might, the old man rushed forward and caught the minister by the arm. "'Madman, hold! What is your purpose?' whispered he. "'Wave back that woman! Cast off this child! All shall be well!' Do not blacken your fame and perish in dishonor. I can yet save you. Would you bring infamy on your sacred profession? Ha, tempter, methinks thou art too late, answered the minister, encountering his eye, fearfully but firmly. Thy power is not what it was. With God's help I shall escape thee now. He again extended his hand to the woman of the scarlet letter. "'Hester Prynne!' cried he, with a piercing earnestness. "'In the name of him, so terrible and so merciful, "'who gives me grace at this last moment, "'to do what, for my own heavy sin and miserable agony, "'I withheld myself from doing seven years ago, "'come hither now, and twine thy strength about me. "'Thy strength, Hester, but let it be guided by the will "'which God hath granted me. "'This wretched and wronged old man is opposing it with all his might.' "'with all his own might, and the fiends. "'Come, Hester, come, support me up yonder scaffold.' "'The crowd was in a tumult. "'The men of rank and dignity, "'who stood more immediately around the clergyman, "'were so taken by surprise, "'and so perplexed as to the purport of what they saw, "'unable to receive the explanation, "'which most readily presented itself, "'or to imagine any other, "'that they remained silent and inactive spectators of the judgment which Providence seemed about to work. They beheld the minister, leaning on Hester's shoulder, and supported by her arm around him, approach the scaffold and ascend its steps, while still the little hand of the sin-born child was clasped in his. Old Roger Chillingworth followed, as one intimately connected with the drama of guilt and sorrow in which they had all been actors, "'and well entitled, therefore, to be present at its closing scene. Hadst thou sought the whole earth over,' said he, looking darkly at the clergyman, "'there was no one place so secret, no high place nor lowly place, "'where thou couldst have escaped me, save on this very scaffold.' "'Thanks be to him who hath led me hither,' answered the minister." Yet he trembled, and turned to Hester with an expression of doubt and anxiety in his eyes, not the less evidently betrayed, that there was a feeble smile upon his lips. "'Is not this better,' murmured he, "'than what we dreamed of in the forest?' "'I know not, I know not,' she hurriedly replied. "'Better, yea, so we may both die and little Pearl die with us.' For thee and Pearl, be it as God shall order, said the minister, and God is merciful. Let me now do the will which he hath made plain before my sight. For Hester, I am a dying man, so let me make haste to take my shame upon me. Partly supported by Hester Prynne, and holding one hand of little pearls, the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale turned to the dignified and venerable rulers, to the holy ministers, who were his brethren, to the people whose great heart was thoroughly appalled, yet overflowing with tearful sympathy, as knowing that some deep life-matter, which, if full of sin, was full of anguish and repentance likewise, was now to be laid open to them. The sun, but little past its meridian, shone down upon the clergyman, and gave a distinctness to his figure, as he stood out from all the earth to put in his plea of guilty at the bar of eternal justice." "'People of New England!' cried he, "'with a voice that rose over them, "'high, solemn, and majestic, "'yet had always a tremor through it, "'and sometimes a shriek, "'struggling up out of a fathomless depth "'of remorse and woe. "'Ye that have loved me, "'ye that have deemed me holy, "'behold me here, "'the one sinner of the world. "'At last, at last, "'I stand upon the spot where, seven years since, "'I should have stood, "'here with this woman.' whose arm, more than little strength wherewith I have crept hitherward, sustains me, at this dreadful moment, from groveling down upon my face. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears, ye have all shuddered at it. Wherever her walk hath been, wherever, so miserably burdened, she may have hoped to find repose, it hath cast a lurid gleam of awe and horrible repugnance round about her. But there stood one in the midst of you at whose brand of sin and infamy ye have not shuddered. It seemed at this point as if the minister must leave the remainder of his secret undisclosed, but he fought back the bodily weakness, and still more the faintness of heart, that was striving for the mastery with him. He threw off all assistance and stepped passionately forward a pace before the woman and the child. It was on him, he continued, with a kind of fierceness, so determined was he to speak out of the hole. God's eye beheld it. The angels were forever pointing at it. The devil knew it well, and fretted it continually with the touch of his burning finger. But he hid it cunningly from men, and walked among you with the mien of a spirit, mournful because so pure in a sinful world, and sad because he missed his heavenly kindred. Now at the death hour he stands up before you. He bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter. He tells you that, with all its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow of what he bears on his own breast, and that even this, his own red stigma, is no more than the type of what has seared his inmost heart. Stand any here that questions God's judgment on a sinner. Behold, behold the dreadful witness of it. With a convulsive motion, he tore away the ministerial band from before his breast. It was revealed, but it was irreverent to describe that revelation. For an instant, the gaze of the horror-stricken multitude was concentrated on the ghastly miracle, while the minister stood with a flush of triumph in his face, as one who, in the crisis of acutest pain, had won a victory— Then down he sank upon the scaffold. Hester partly raised him and supported his head against her bosom. Old Roger Chillingworth knelt down beside him with a blank, dull countenance, out of which the life seemed to have departed. Thou hast escaped me, he repeated more than once. Thou hast escaped me. May God forgive thee, said the minister. Thou, too, hast deeply sinned. He withdrew his dying eyes from the old man and fixed them on the woman and the child. "'My little Pearl,' said he feebly, and there was a sweet and gentle smile over his face, as of a spirit sinking into deep repose. Nay, now that the burden was removed, it seemed almost as if he would be sportive with the child. "'Dear little Pearl, wilt thou kiss me now? Thou wouldst not, yonder in the forest, but now thou wilt?' Pearl kissed his lips. A spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore a part had developed all her sympathies, and as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever do battle with the world, but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand as a messenger of anguish was all fulfilled. Hester, said the clergyman, farewell. Shall we not meet again, whispered she, bending her face down close to his. Shall we not spend our immortal life together? Surely, surely, we have ransomed one another with all this woe. Thou lookest far into eternity with those bright dying eyes. Then tell me what thou seest. Hush, Hester, hush, said he, with tremulous solemnity. THE LAW WE BROKE, THE SIN HERE SO AWFULLY REVEALED, LET THESE ALONE BE IN THY THOUGHTS. I FEAR, I FEAR, IT MAY BE, THAT WHEN WE FORGOT OUR GOD, WHEN WE VIOLATED OUR REVERENCE EACH FOR THE OTHER'S SOUL, IT WAS thenceforth VAIN TO HOPE THAT WE COULD MEET HEREAFTER IN AN EVERLASTING AND PURE REUNION. GOD KNOWS, AND HE IS MERCIFUL. HE HATH PROVED HIS MERCY, MOST OF ALL, IN MY AFFLICTIONS by giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast, by sending yonder dark and terrible old man to keep the torture always at red heat, by bringing me hither to die this death of triumphant ignominy before the people, had either of these agonies been wanting, I had been lost forever. Praise be his name, his will be done. Farewell that final word came forth with the minister's expiring breath. The multitude, silent till then, broke out in a strange deep voice of awe and wonder, which could not as yet find utterance, save in this murmur that rolled so heavily after the departed spirit. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.